0: I'd phoned NHS Direct because he was um, bringing up mucus. It filled my hand. Reminded me of overboiled cabbage. And he brought up a clear brown fluid, um, quite watery. But because there were no other obvious symptoms, NHS Direct thought he was okay. They did suggest you had a cold. Turns out they were wrong.
1: This is Cookie. I first met Cookie a few months ago as part of my job as the Women's Justice Advocate at the Centre for Criminal Appeals. We are a non-profit law practice who specialise in wrongful convictions my job is to investigate the cases of women who we believe to have suffered a miscarriage of justice. Cookie's story is extraordinary. But what you're about to hear contains distressing content. This is Surviving Injustice. Untold Stories from the Wrongfully Convicted. A podcast from the Centre for Criminal Appeals.
0: wanted a big family. Is there anything better? I'm the middle of five children. We, we moved to another house when I was ten. And years later my mum actually bought that house and then when she decided that because all of us children had moved house, the house was too big for her. So she wanted to move somewhere smaller. So rented the house to me and my babies. So me and my babies had my baby home. it was quite nice. And terrace, nice garden. Yeah, Very strange though, bringing up your own children in the house that you grew up in. But you do think, oh, I remember coming here when I was a child. Take the kids there, they'll like it. I liked it, they'll like it. There used to be a market on the way to the swimming bath at the end of the road and we'd go to the swimming bath at the weekend and on the way back, you go past the market and there's a man there always shouting really, really loud about oranges. Dribbly down your chin, blood oranges. Every weekend, that's what he said. And every weekend, we got dribbly down your chin, blood oranges. But he wasn't there when I was there with my kids, that's what I went up to see. But no, he wasn't there. I have three children. I have one girl and two boys, my daughter's the youngest and then I've got my middle boy and my baby boy. Petey's the youngest, he's my baby boy. They used to sit in the bath, the three of them, and Pete had one of those baths that go over the main bath, so Pete would be in his bath, my son would be behind him and my daughter behind him, like a little train of children in the bath. and. They'd wash each other's hair and I'd wash my daughter's. She'd wash my eldest son's and he'd wash the babies. And they liked that. They liked sharing their bath with the baby. All three of my children had been to spend a day with um, my elder sister, elder sisters, plural. They have children of their own and, and my sisters maintain that my baby was okay. It was the next day that he was tired and ill. He was um, bringing up mucus. I phoned NHS Direct and they asked me if I'd done all the checks. Because there were no other obvious symptoms, NHS Direct thought he was okay. You try to justify things to yourself, don't you? You don't want to panic yourself into thinking that there's something seriously wrong. And when you do get to the point that you need to ask for help and you phone the doctor or the NHS or your mum or, or whatever and they tell you that he's OK, you're so relieved he's OK, you listen. You shouldn't listen. Hindsight's great there isn't it? First of August, two thousand and two, PT would have been exactly twelve weeks old. It was a Thursday. I sat him on my lap to feed him about half three, and he went to sleep. My son and daughter were in shorts and t-shirts. It was a sunny day. They were playing in the garden, running in and out of the house. Um, I winded PT. He didn't wake up. Um, put him into his pushchair. I got the other two ready and we went out to the shop. We went into Boots. I can remember the pharmacist in Boots coming round the counter to look at Petey and say how cute he was and that he was fast asleep. Then I took my older two for their choice of whatever they wanted from the bakery on the way home. Um, My daughter was into French sticks back then. She liked long bread rolls and my son was into anything with icing. And Petey was obviously in his pushchair. 12 weeks, is not old enough for bread rolls and things. So we all went back to the house. So I left Petey in the back garden in the sun, got the other two in and settled with them, made phone calls to go and get a breast pump that evening. So I did all of that, and then I thought, well, if I don't wake Petey now, he's not going to sleep tonight. So I went out to wake him, and he'd had a nose bleed. I phoned NHS Direct, they said they'd call me back. I missed the call. I phoned them again. And they sent paramedics. When I was on the phone, they'd ask me if my son was breathing. You're frantically trying to feel for a pulse on your baby. And you think you get one. You think you get one on his chest. I took Petey into the living room and sat him in the corner of the sofa with cushions around him so he couldn't fall. I had the older two help me pack a bag. And then the police paramedics turned up. Um, I can remember a man sitting on my sofa with Petey on his lap. Petey was on his back and um, the man is using his hands to do chest compressions on Petey. And then I can remember um, ambulance, I can remember an ambulance and I can remember them telling me that Petey was in the ambulance and asking me to get in the ambulance. And I can remember my older boy clinging onto my legs, panicked, scared and telling him it was going to be okay that Nanny would come and get him. He was going to go with the policeman, they were both going to go with the policeman but Nanny would come and get them. And I'd see them tomorrow, or I'd see them that night. It's crazy. The siren's going, and cars aren't moving out the way. And you're telling yourself it's going to be OK, it's got to be OK. I don't remember much else. Maybe it's too muddled. maybe I've blocked it, I don't know. You get to the hospital, and I don't remember walking into the recess room but I can remember leaning against a metal bed frame behind me. A bit in front there was another bed that Petey was on and there was what seemed like lots of staff around him. I do remember them stepping away from the bed and thinking that he must be okay, otherwise they'd still be around him, they'd still be doing something. Now, I wrote this piece, I think I wrote it a few years later. Um, It's called The Banshee. I remember a person standing in front of me, their mouth moving, but I do not recall what they said. All I remember is the scream, a pained voice, agony, the disembodied voice that screamed a long, enduring no, like the wail of a banshee. Years after the banshee wail, I came to see that that noise must have come from me. But I cannot claim the noise as my own. I had no control over it. It poured from me, independent of my mind. Besides, in order to claim ownership of that noise, I would need to claim acceptance of what caused the wail. Words as foreign to me as the banshee wail. I'm sorry, but your son is dead. That must have been written in 2007. And I still hear that scream. There's too much information in your head. They're telling you your son's dead, but you know he's not. He's asleep. At most he's in a coma. But he's not dead because babies... Babies don't go from being well to being dead. Doesn't happen. Shouldn't happen. And he's my son. He's perfect. My perfect son can't just die like that. It's not allowed. And then they told me they wanted to do some samples. They wanted to take urine from his bladder and they wanted to cut some flesh out of his leg. For that, they wanted me to go to another room so I didn't have to be there. But I wouldn't. Because in my head, when they tried to put a needle into my son, his eyes were going to move. He would feel that. Because he wasn't dead. And so you're sitting there and they're doing the needle and you're telling yourself, any second now he's going to react. And he doesn't. And then they tell you they're cutting something from his leg. And there's still no reaction. And then at that point, I don't know, you shut down. I can remember being extremely tired. And I went to my cousin's house that night. Um, I can remember coming down the stairs and my aunt and my cousin were in the kitchen talking and as soon as I walked in they stopped. And then I went back upstairs and went to sleep. The next night I was back at home and... um, My family was so concerned about me that they had somebody come out, a doctor come out and medicate me to make me sleep. Um, You go to sleep and you wake up in the morning and you expect the Moses basket to be there and it's there but you can't hear any breathing, you can't see any hands moving and you wake up and question why you can't hear the kids. At the hospital, when Peter died, they originally said it was a suspected Sibs case, sudden infant death syndrome. My understanding was that there was no way to prove sudden infant death. There's no one piece of evidence that will say this was cot death. And I think the fact that cot death and Unascertainable are used interchangeably is significant because it means that you can't prove a cot death. There's no way to prove it. It's an answer put forward when there's no other way to explain things. You can suspect it, um, you can say it's a probable, but you can't prove it beyond reasonable doubt apparently. I can remember being at not the main police station for that area, but one of the offshoots, and they were asking me questions. I can remember getting very frustrated with the fact they kept mispronouncing my son's name. To me, that was so disrespectful. If you're going to talk about him, at least talk about him with the right name. I wanted to answer every question they asked Because I knew that somewhere there must be an answer to what had happened to my son. I came to find out that the police weren't completely comfortable with the explanations and information I'd given them. There was a knock at the door early in the morning. And I went to answer it. And there was a woman standing there in plain clothes and she told me she was a police officer. She told me she was arresting me, but even that didn't register because it just didn't matter to me. Nothing mattered to me at that point in my life. My baby was gone. I don't know if I ever actually realized that they suspected me of killing my son because to me, such an idea was so bizarre. I had a week in prison, then I had bail for about, would have been about a year. And during that year, I spent about 15 hours a day online, researching possible causes to explain my son's health and death. And you want to scream at everyone, you know. Answer my questions, find out why you died. And it's like you're talking another language because nobody can understand what you're saying, what you're asking. And then you start to question your own sanity, you know. Maybe I'm looking for answers that aren't there. Maybe I'm not asking the right questions. I bought medical dictionaries to go through post-mortem reports. I sent emails all over the world trying to get answers. I'm still asking questions now that I was asking 15 years ago. When you're in the courtroom, you're sat at the back of the courtroom. You're directly opposite the judge, but there's a whole load of tables in between you with legal experts and legal teams and all of this kind of stuff. And then on the in my court where I was, on the right-hand side... Along the wall there, there's the seats for the jury, and they're in two rows. And you glance at them and you think, okay. how many of you actually have toddlers? How many of you have had the fear of your baby being ill? How many of you have any understanding already of these big, long medical terms they're going to use? (laughs) You know? And you just have to hope that they can take in what's being said and understand it. So when the trial started, I was quite confident that I would not understand what they were talking about. And they're saying things, and you know you should know what they're talking about, because you've read the same report. But it's like it's all gone, you know, and you're trying to follow what's being said, and, and you do sit there thinking, well, actually I'd quite like you to expand on that a bit, and you can't ask them to you know that you should understand what they're saying because you've read it all before and you've gone through it all before and you've researched it, you've read up on it you've watched lectures on the internet about certain things and all this different information is there in your head but when you're in that courtroom and they're talking it's all gone, you can't access it all and there's just a whole load of big long words that you can't understand and bear in mind I'd spent a year reading all these big long terms for me to be in that courtroom to not understand them where did that leave the jury? they can only base it on what they think they understand of the situation. The charge against me was that I had killed my son and that I had asphyxiated or smothered my son. Post-mortem reports showed that my son, Petey, had old and fresh blood in his lungs. The CPS and their medical experts were of the opinion that the old blood signified a smothering episode up to 48 hours before my son died, and that the fresh blood was evidence of a smothering episode at the time of death. Um, There wasn't a lot more that I can remember being significant evidence on their part. The the nosebleed, obviously, that was class as significant. The defence that was put forward for me was firstly that I hadn't done it and that the evidence of the old and new blood in the lungs could be an indication of something else. It didn't prove smothering because old blood can be the result of something else, so can fresh blood. There were other ways to interpret all of the evidence presented by the CPS. What I've learnt now is that There are certain telltale signs, um, burst blood vessels, uh, eye damage, fibres. There was nothing on my son. There were no burst vessels, there were no fibres in his airways, no bruising. There was a nosebleed. That's it. I don't know if I have a definite cause in my own head for why he died, but there are questions that I still need answered. Petey died because he couldn't breathe. They've all agreed that. The question is why he couldn't breathe. Peter's thymus was nearly five times the weight and size it should have been. Now, if you've got something five times the weight and size pushing against the windpipes and sitting on top of the lungs and the child dies because they can't breathe, surely that thymus should be queried. It's horrendous hearing them talk about your son as though he's just a piece of meat. When they're talking about him, he's not a person anymore. He's not your beautiful boy who has all these little quirks and looks great in that particular jumper or whatever. He's a number. He's a random name that means nothing to anybody. They don't understand the meaning of his name and the hopes and dreams we had for our son. They're talking about him as though he's nothing. He's just a piece of evidence. I was sat at the back of the court and the CPS had a table directly in front of me with boxes of paperwork on it and... What they'd done was they'd put a picture of my son's eyeball partly visible from where I was sitting. So, for the whole of my trial, I was looking at a picture of my son's eyeball. You're trying to block it. You're trying not to look at it. But you know it's there. You're still there thinking, is that my son's eyeball? Yes, it is my son's eyeball. They actually took his eye out. And I know that I didn't want to express emotions in that courtroom. Because as far as I'm concerned, if I'm showing emotions, I can't be focusing on what's being said. If I'm sitting there crying, I'm not hearing and I need to hear. If I'm sitting there crying, I can't see and I need to see. You know that if you let your emotions out, you're not going to hear or see anything. You're just going to be a wreck. So you bottle it. You block them off. The fact that in my situation, I didn't express emotions made me appear cold and uncaring. And it's almost assumed that females aren't that females are going to be very emotional, that they're going to sit there and cry and pull their hair out and wring their hands and all the rest of it. We're not, as females, meant to be able to take a step back. We're meant to be emotional before anything else. We're not meant to be practical. We're not meant to be level-headed. We're not meant to be forward-thinking, detached, or any of those kind of things. They're seen as masculine elements, female elements, maternal, emotional, possibly moody. But don't worry, it's the time of the month. We can ignore it. To be detached, you're seen as not right straight from the word go. The evidence isn't just what's verbally said. The fact is, body language and presentation has an impact on jury opinion. And whether we like it or not, the fact that I'm a mother and my son died does have an impact. People automatically assume or have expectations of what mothering should involve. And when they hear that a mother has allegedly murdered her child, they have knee-jerk reactions. They quite often assume that such an allegation wouldn't be made unless there were evidence to support it. So they don't even need to hear the evidence. Because the idea of a mother killing her own child is so horrendous, a lot of people assume that an accusation wouldn't be made without solid evidence behind it. My trial had been going on for about two weeks, two and a bit weeks, and I'd gone to court, my aunt was there, my sister was there. Um, At one point on that day the the judge spoke to the jury and said that because they couldn't all agree that there wasn't a unanimous verdict from the jury that he would accept a majority verdict so it lets you know that at least one person in that jury of strangers has kept an open mind The jury came back in and I don't remember who said first that I was guilty. I remember the judge telling me that he was sentencing me to the only sentence he could sentence me to. They sentence you to life. Today's the anniversary of my son's death. He's been dead 16 years, so... Some days I'm okay, other days I'll step outside the front door and the sun will be shining and straight away it's like, well, why is it bothering? My son's not there to feel it. Why is it bothering? You know, my son should see that sun. My son should see that garden. I try not to mark the anniversaries of Peter's death in a big way because it's, it's so negative. You should celebrate a life every day, you know, not just on the day that the life ended. Every anniversary I do set aside some time to apologise to Pete for it being yet another year where he hasn't got peace yet another year where people think he was so unloved. And I don't want that for my son. He should be remembered for how much he was loved and how much joy he brought and how much he was valued and wanted and how much hope we had for his future. I also, I don't only just apologise, I do make myself have I say make myself it's not difficult to do but I make myself have only half an hour because I could quite happily do it for hours but I have half an hour in the evening when it's all quiet and I remember just holding him and I like that time I like that half hour with him a little snuggly bubbly again (laughs) I like that
1: Surviving Injustice is a podcast from the Centre for Criminal Appeals and is produced and edited by Lizzie Norton, May Robson and me, Naima Sakande. If you're curious about what the Centre for Criminal Appeals does or you want to know more about Cookie, you can find photographs and some of her poetry and writing on our website at www.criminalappeals.org.uk forward slash podcast. And please stay in touch in other ways. Make sure you follow us on Twitter at C4CrimAppeals, 4 is the number 4, or tell us what you think of by shooting an email to mail at criminalappeals.org.uk. We'd love to hear from you. Lastly, we want to give a huge thank you to Jake Tyler, who created our logo. Make sure you stay tuned for part two of Cookie Story.